0: but we want to make sure that they have the resources that they need and that we message to them in a way that they connect with our agenda connect with our priorities and understand how we are the party of preference and choice that can protect their interests in terms of jobs that they be created in terms of civil rights in terms of quality education in the school system in terms of doing what need be done so that those people can feel that they can live a valuable and significant life and contribute to society.
1: Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host Evan Dito, along with my co-host Adrian Guest, and we are back at it again here in season three with a special Juneteenth weekly roundup. Uh, for two thousand and twenty-one, so that means yes, we've been doing this this show here for three seasons. We've officially made a year today to the date we started, Juneteenth of twenty twenty, and we're back again. I am aging. I know we kind of we you know we there was a lot of news going on during the break, and we missed our viewers. We missed talking about the news, uh, but of course, I am excited, and I know you are excited to get back at it.
2: Exactly, Devin, and to our listeners and viewers, I I missed you as always. Uh, I'm engaged with the news, ready to give my spin and opinions on everything, and been missing the time being away from you all. But as as everything that's perfect and good, they need you know breaks and need some time off, and Devin and I needed that as well. But yeah, Devin, I mean it's Juneteenth, and this is a, a special Juneteenth. Uh, the first of its kind, uh, and it's definitely going to go down in the memories of so many uh, black and uh, uh, black families around the country today.
1: Absolutely, it's a day of celebration, and it means a little bit more this year uh, because it is going to be a national holiday. But before we get to that, we do want to just explain, you know, what Juneteenth is, why we're celebrating it. So, for those who don't know. Juneteenth actually commemorates the date, which is June 19th, 1865, uh, which is actually two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln. And this was two months after the end of the Civil War. And so what happened is word finally made it to Texas. And, and that is where hundreds of thousands of enslaved men and women um, who, who were in Texas finally learned that they had actually been free for two years. They just didn't know it. And so we celebrate this day, you know, to remember, you know, the, the horrors that we have come from and how far the country itself has come. Um, but we're also looking forward to where we're, you know, where our journey is going. And so, like I say, it is. Juneteenth is actually a federal holiday now. President Biden signed the legislation on Thursday, establishing a new federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery, um, saying he believes it goes down as one of the greatest honors he has had as president. And so... He signed it in to make June 19th a federal it, – it is the 12th federal holiday. Um, and so, Adrian, this is a pretty big deal. You know, we don't get federal holidays very often. Like I say, it's, it's the 12th one we got here, um, and it passed uh, 415 to 14 uh, through the House. 14 people voted against making Juneteenth the holiday. Still don't understand that. But um, I guess, Adrian, you know, for a lot of folks, it is exciting, um, you know, to finally get this, this holiday recognized um and and slated and and in stone you know that we will celebrate this every year from here on out
2: yes devin it is good one thing uh to to note here is is i really wish that this was was It, it is it's a very great gesture, but I wish we could do more with it on the state level because it is a federal holiday, but it's up to some states to kind of recognize it on their calendar and give off their workers and things like that. I wish it could be something where, you know, we would just be able to do it throughout all levels mm-hmm. of government. But, you know, n- nevertheless, it's still really, really awesome to be able to have this um, to where, you know, we've got, you know, a, a moment where people... You know, every, every year people will be able to, you know, hear about Juneteenth, learn more about it, and learn what it actually means. You know, learn about the, the liberation of, you know, of, of, you know, those people who thought that they were still slave, but being, you know, actually told that they weren't no longer, and really learning what, you know, slavery actually did to our country. I really think, Devin, when we talk about like what this actually means to us, I mean, it's going to be really, really great. I mean, it's 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 huge. I mean, it's like you say, we don't get you know federal holidays all the time. I mean, it's you know MLK Day. I mean, you know, in 1983 was the last time we've had that. So, I mean, it's it's a really really cool deal to be able to have this going on. And whenever you think about what it's going to do as far as the educational outreach for our community, um, I think that that's where the potential really, uh, really, you know, it has a lot of great potential there um, because with it having this status, you know, you're going to have a lot of people who aren't Black finally learning about this issue. Uh, A lot of people who are Black who didn't even know about Juneteenth. So I I really, I really feel that the awareness is going to, you know, be built because of this. Um, you're going to have some people who aren't going to want to pay attention to it. You'll have people like your Candace Owens who think that you know July 4th is more important than Juneteenth. But um, it, it's just going to be another point for us, uh, almost like some more ammunition for activists and uh, for civil rights leaders to really demand equality and demand justice. To say that you know we, we really need uh, more and more awareness, bring this to something to where. Uh, we recognize this. Maybe every year they do something, you know, just like they have a Fourth of July uh, parade at the White House. Maybe they need to do a Juneteenth parade, a Juneteenth big celebration so that the, it actually shows that the federal government is acknowledging it, you know, above just giving it, you know, the, the holiday status. But I don't know, Devin, that's kind of what I think. Well, what, how do you feel about that?
1: I'm pretty much in line with that that thinking there. And like you say, yeah, it's it's great that we're going to be celebrating, um, you know, the, this holiday, this, this mark in history. And, and it's good to make sure that we do look back and reflect on what happened. And just the fact that it took two and a half years for um, the last enslaved people in this country to figure out that they had been free uh, for those two years. And like you say, a lot of people didn't know about it. Um, it's not something that you hear about a lot, but it is good that we're now getting that awareness out there to the real history of this country. And, um, you know, some people aren't happy about it, but that's just kind of how it goes, particularly with folks like a Candace Owens or Charlie Kirk and, and the Ben Shapiro's of the world uh, may not necessarily be happy with this, but I have a feeling if this was one Donald Trump who had signed this bill making it in a federal holiday, Um, they probably would have been a okay with it. You know, he would have been the one trying to heal the nation. (laughs) Um, But it is President Biden um, who they didn't vote for, so they have something negative to say about it. Again, it's you know, it's a symbolic gesture. We get it. Look, we're not saying President Biden signing this bill is somehow a huge leap forward for the country. Uh, It's a nice gesture. You know, it's a very symbolic gesture, but there are still tangible things that we need to get done. And so... Um, Those are some of the things we're going to discuss in our upcoming interview. So like I say, this is a special Juneteenth edition of the podcast uh, of the weekly roundup. And so we're going to have two interviews. And so the first one that's going to be coming up here in just a second uh, is going to involve the organizing director um, from the collective pack. It's a very interesting interview. We're going to talk about black voters. And in particular, we're going to talk about the 2020 election. And the messaging that was used to try to mobilize black voters and minority voters, too, um, and why that messaging didn't necessarily work the way we want or the way that Democrats wanted it to. And we're going to talk at length about what can be done to ensure, um, you know, that that black support for the Democratic Party continues. And so, um, again, this is going to be the organizing director of the collective PAC. So we're going to go ahead and turn it over. So make sure you sit back and listen well. And we'll we'll see you on the other side.
0: We absolutely appreciate
3: your support. You are the foundation, and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show.
1: All right, listeners, so you know how we do it here at the Black Agenda Podcast. We always like to start our seasons or our shows off with great guests, and today is no different. So um, since we're about halfway through the first year of the Biden term, we figured um, this was a good time to kind of check in to see how things are going and see if, you know, all those promises that we heard on the campaign trail are a- are actually coming to fruition. But we're also going to take a look back at the 2020 election, too. And so today we have a great, great guest here. Uh, his name is Mr. Kevin Olasanoye. He's the organizing director of the Collective Pack, and he is here to talk with us about the Collective Pack and what they're doing, but also about a recent review they just did of the 2020 election. And so before we get going, we do want to let you know a little bit about Kevin. Um, so he is a passionate and dedicated advocate. Uh, with an extensive background in community organizing and political advocacy. And so he is a proud graduate of the University of Rhode Island, where he holds a BA in political science and history. And he received his Juris Doctor from Roger Williams University School of Law. So very impressive background. And he's doing some amazing work um, to help get black candidates elected. So, Kevin, we just wanted to thank you for coming on the show.
3: Thanks for having me on, guys. Good to be
1: with you. Definitely. So, you know, just like I say, before we get going, could you just give us a little bit about, you know, the collective pack and what's what's the goal with that? And just just kind of, you know, tell us about your job, your role there as the organizing director. Um,
3: at the, Yeah, at the thanks, pack. guys. Um, so the collective's mission is to build black political power across the country. Uh, and the way we do that is primarily by supporting candidates that are running for office at the federal, state and local level. But I would say the other piece of the work that we do that is equally important is sort of our voter engagement work, which is really designed to create an arc of engagement. Uh, Look, the reality is that not all Black people are Black voters, And so what we need to do is to figure out strategies to be able to create permission structures for folks who are sitting on the sidelines. The way we do that primarily is by supporting Black candidates who are running for office at the federal, state, and local level. I would say the other sort of major piece of the work that we do is around voter engagement with Black people. I think what's important for people to understand is that we take very seriously the idea that there is a difference between Black people and Black voters, and they are not always the same thing. And so, you know, what the work of the collective is, is about kind of creating permission structures for folks who are sitting on the sidelines with respect to civic engagement and bringing them into the fold. So that's like registration, that's Education that's activating those folks, connecting them to the candidates and the issues that they care about, giving them a reason to be motivated to show up to vote, and then also mobilizing them, actually figuring out what are our strategies for, you know, getting people outside of their door to a voting booth to cast a vote. And so, you know, I think what we're trying to do at The Collective is to think comprehensively about what is it that we need to do to advance the causes that black people care about on one hand it is electing black office holders across the country and then on the other hand it is also about lifting up and empowering our folks by giving them the ability to take you know their own future into their hands by casting their votes on a regular basis
2: Well, Kevin, yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, We think uh, from the 2020 election, being able to really get turnout and get voter education out there, those are really two important goals because um, it seems like there were so many falsehoods about candidates and uh, so much disinformation, misinformation um, for the voters out there. So it's awesome that the collective pack is doing their job to make sure our minority, especially our black voters are educated. And when you really look at it even further, we know that the Collective Pack, along with Third Way and Latino Victory, did some uh, rather release wide-ranging results from their review of the 2020 election cycle. Although the report was centered on minority support for Democrats, Kevin, we wanted to kind of ask you, you know, what stood out to you and the Collective Pack when it especially came to Black voters and their support for Democrats?
3: Yeah, so a few things, I think, to take away from the report, and I encourage people to read the entire report because it is actually rich with a lot of information. To contextualize the report, you know, it's the most comprehensive collection of anecdotal and data analysis of the 2020 election cycle that I have seen thus far. I'm not sure you will find a more comprehensive compilation of all that information, The report itself was not intended to be prescriptive in the sense that it wasn't actually designed to tell us what we think we should be doing in 2022. It was more really just kind of digging underneath the hood of the 2020 election cycle and telling us what actually happened. I think with respect to Black voters specifically, what we learned in the 2020 cycle is that the current Democratic Party playbook relative to those voters doesn't work. And by that, I mean, look, I have been doing this work now for quite a while. And as a young organizer, I remember knocking on doors in urban, ex-urban communities, reaching out to black folks. And inevitably, I'd knock on somebody's door, they'd open the door, we start to have the conversation, and they would say something to the effect of, that's cool, but where have y'all been in the last four years, right? This idea that Black folks are sort of mobilization targets, meaning like we take for granted that they are going to vote for Democrats, so we don't try to persuade them that voting for Democrats is the right thing to do. Instead, we say, we just need to make sure that they show up to the polls. And if we do that, then we're pretty confident that they'll turn out and that they will vote for Democrats. I think that notion that I've just described was completely destroyed by the 2020 election cycle. What we know for sure, based on what we saw last year, is that you have to treat communities of color black folks specifically, the same way you treat their white counterparts as it relates to election programming. And so what that means is you've got to talk to them earlier, you've got to invest more money in them, and you have to persuade them to vote the same way you do other constituencies within the Democratic Party. If you do that, there is evidence to suggest, based on what happened in 2020, that you can be very successful even in places that are considered an away game. So take, for example, the Georgia runoff election in uh, at the beginning of this year, which is sort of an outgrowth of the 2020 election cycle. Because of the work that Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight and all of the organizations did in Georgia over the course of the last two years, having a running, regular conversation with Black folks in the Atlanta suburbs, in Atlanta specifically, and all over the state of Georgia, by the time you get to the runoff election in 2021, you don't have to mobilize those folks to go to the polls because you've been having that conversation for two years. And what we saw in terms of the electoral results is that Black people voted early and they voted often. Uh, and so I think that you know look again I, I as I said, the report is not intended to tell us what we should be doing in 2022, but I will say this the one very, very clear takeaway that I have as it relates to black people is spend your money there like you spend your money in other communities, invest your time and your resources and your attention to black folks and they will ultimately deliver, the results that you need and they'll do that in places that the talking heads and conventional wisdom says you can't win which is exactly what people thought about georgia two years ago
1: and that's a very very good point um i think i you know just hearing you talk about it i would have thought that you know that that the party the democratic party would have learned from 2016 where you know Hillary Clinton, to me at least, didn't necessarily articulate a real um, persuasive argument for coming out and voting for her um, versus, you know, it was like the lesser of two evils is the way a lot of people looked at it. And they just kind of put their hands up and said, hey, we're not going to really come out. And it was no persuasive argument to get them to the polls necessarily. Um, The other thing I think um, was wondering, too, is just how much do you think – there was, I don't know, I think they call it like split voting, I guess. you know. Did you notice, at least among Black voters, that there was a lot of, say, folks who would vote for, say, Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, and then wouldn't necessarily vote for the down-ballot candidates or would vote for the other party? Did you see a lot of that happening?
3: Yeah. So not a lot of ticket splitting. Um, at least the report doesn't indicate or delve into the idea of ticket splitting. It does do a good comprehensive job of sort of understanding specific down-ballot races that happened across the country. Um, it tears them out in sort of tier one and tier two and does a real deep dive into how voters behaved in those specific districts in support of the conclusions that it draws. So to your specific question about do you see people splitting the ticket, meaning they're voting for you know, President Biden, and then maybe voting for a Republican somewhere else or not voting Democratic. Not sure that I saw very much of that. I think what was the most concerning thing was just the lack, frankly, of increase in vote share among Black people across the country. So let me flesh this out a little bit more. The total number of Black people across the country who voted in the 2020 election cycle versus the 2020 2016 election cycle was more, right? There were more Black people who showed up to vote in 2020. The problem is that their share of Black votes in the electorate compared to the share of Black votes in the electorate in 2016 was actually down. And that is because there was also an explosion of white folks who showed up to vote in the 2020 election cycle. You'll have to remember that in 2020, we saw the highest election turnout that we've seen in almost 100 years. So Black people showed up, white folks showed up, Asian people showed up, Hispanic people showed up, just about everybody showed up. Um, And so what's concerning about that, in my view, is that you've seen our erosion of democratic support among Black folks, and you've also seen you know black folks ability to affect the overall electorate go down a little bit because other folks are voting too and so to me you know again if you're looking at sort of prospectively what should we be thinking about that that means we've got to do a better job of making sure that more black folks show up to vote so that that constituency continues to remain a powerful and influential one in our national and local politics
1: Right. And that's that's super, super interesting um, in hearing you talk about that, because one of the reasons you were saying there's a slow erosion of support, you know, for Democrats among black voters and then just our total vote share um, is going down because, you know, more more white voters did come out. Um, One of the things uh, we wanted to ask about, too, is just the role of. Any real progress on issues that our community has been asking for for a long time, um, whether that's fixing schools, you know, or providing you know more economic economic opportunities um, to Black businesses, um, or just trying to reform the criminal justice system or policing um, institutions, uh, just it just has really been tough to get any real tangible um, you know benefits for voting for the Democratic Party. At least that's how I I feel like there's an attitude out there amongst you know, Black voters that, look, we've been voting for Democrats for years and we just really haven't seen any real change. Do you think that attitude is starting to kind of have an effect and and really show up in elections now where Black voters aren't necessarily as loyal as they used to be to the party?
3: Yeah, I would say a few things about this. First is The erosion of Democratic Party support is not isolated to Black folks, although it is a trend that people should be paying attention to. You know, one of the things that you heard in the out, you know, in the aftermath of the 2020 election cycle is that a similar erosion is happening in the Latino community. Query what the reasons are for that. I think actually we're seeing an erosion of Voters generally wanting to be affiliated with a political party. In other words, I think what you're seeing is particularly among younger voters, people are more interested in, to your point, what is the what are the fruits of the political party that I'm supporting? And I'll make my decisions about what party I support based on those fruits. So. You know, I think that the conversation around have Democrats delivered on the promises that they have made to Black folks is an important one. It's also very complicated. And I say that because I think Democrats control Congress, both chambers, but there is a very slim majority in both of those chambers. So I believe a seven seat majority in the House and it is a one vote majority effectively in the Senate because there's a 50-50 split and the vice president breaks the tie. And so it requires a few things. One is it requires um, on some of these bills, you gotta have all 50 Democrats stay on the same page and um having spent a little bit of time as a junior staffer in the senate and a long long time ago a, a, a former colleague of mine described that as herding cats getting them to march in the parade while juggling knives and walking on hot coals not the easiest thing to do in the world but that's like step 1 step 2 given that you have sort of the slim majorities that you have, and particularly in the Senate, it requires some level of bipartisanship, frankly, from Republicans. (laughs) The way the Senate rules uh, operate, you've got to get 10 Republicans on the other side to come over to advance, you know, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, or H.R. 1, right? So, Without having a good faith partner on the other side who's willing to see these things as priorities, or at least view it from the perspective of let's see how we can get to yes, as opposed to doing the Mitch McConnell thing, which is, you know, in this instance, it's stopped the Biden agenda. 12 years ago, it was make sure Barack Obama is a one-term president, like without having a good faith governing partner on the other side, it becomes very difficult. All of that said, in the House where Democrats have absolute control, you have seen a lot of progress, right? The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has passed. John Lewis Voting Rights Act has passed. H.R. 1 for the People Act has passed. And so I think that, what we have to do is measure our success, not only on what happens inside of the Capitol, but also what happens on the outside of the Capitol. And to me, that's why the collective plays such an important role, right? Like in order for us to make sure that these legislative priorities that we're talking about become law, We have got to put pressure on folks in the building and we've got to do that outside of the building. And that means running candidates in some of these districts, building a bench, making sure that there are Black folks who understand the importance of these issues and will prioritize them in governing, who are on the ballot and who are running for these offices and have real opportunities to be able to flip some of these seats and change the way that the building operates. There's no doubt that there is more progress to be made. I would say as a practical matter that's less legislative and more political in my opinion. And so, you know, the collective is one of many groups in the ecosystem that are trying to roll up our sleeves and get that work done
2: and the and the work that you all are doing is is very incredible and very important because until we you know get that legislative and political power in line with each other um we won't be able to get that progress that we keep asking for because we are going to need um more leaders who are pushing for these issues as well as making sure that you know we as a public are you know being engaged throughout the process to have some accountability and transparency And uh, Kevin, kind of to round us off, you were leading uh, uh, into it talking about, you know, uh, the slim majorities that we have in the House and the Senate. We know that the midterms are coming up. We know that, you know, 2024, everybody's looking ahead to that. But we know that there's going to be a a huge need to continue the work that y'all are doing with turnout, with voter education. So, Kevin, you know, what do Democrats really need to do when looking at the 2022 midterms and the 2024 presidential race? To avoid losing more black and minority voter support, because we know that those numbers are going to need to be there, because we're going to continue to see you know white majorities come out to vote because of the big lie being perpetuated. So, what do the Democrats really need to do to make sure they can shore up some of these slim majorities and maybe win a couple of extra
3: seats? Great question. I think the answer is three things. Number one, you have to lead with your values, and by that I mean Look, in 2020, we saw one of the most divisive election cycles any of us can ever remember. And one of the preeminent issues in that election cycle was the issue of race and race relations in America. If you look at the report that was done by Third Way and some of our partners, what became clear to us is that Democrats need to lean into those issues and not run away from those issues. This reminds me so much of the Obamacare conversation in 2010. Recall that in 2010, Democrats controlled all three houses of Congress. They passed the Affordable Care Act, what was 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 called as a pejorative of them Obamacare. Query whether there was some race that was underlying that whole piece, right? And What did Democrats do in that midterm election? They turned around and ran away from that vote, even though the polling suggested that Black people specifically thought that all of the underlying pieces of Obamacare Uh, You know, no pre-existing conditions, denial of coverage, being able to have your kids on your plan until you're 25, the creation of Medicare exchanges that allowed people to go on the open market and purchase all those things, incredibly popular. You called it Obamacare and all of a sudden people hated it, right? Um, I think the same thing is happening in the race context, and I'll use the example of defund the police. If you look at the polling about what the policy prescriptions that people sort of think about when they think of what defund the police means, they're incredibly popular among white segments of the population, among black segments of the population. Just about everybody agrees about the policy prescriptions, but what Republicans have been effective in doing is turning defund the police into a scare tactic, much like they did Obamacare, to a scare tactic. And so I think that what is required of Democrats is to lean into these issues and be bold about where they stand. If they don't do that, then they risk the pop, the possibility of being framed by their opponents. and. If you're late to the party on the messaging game, you've lost the war. So that's the first thing. I think you got to lead with your battles. The second thing I think you got to do is you got to compete everywhere. Um, And what that means to me is like there's no such thing as an away game, there's no such thing as like a race that can't be won. That's a long shot. You know, the collective in 2020 supported candidates, as I said, up and down the ballot. We supported candidates like Mike Espy in Mississippi at a time when a lot of people did not support Mike Espy. Um, we did the same thing for Jamie Harrison in his race for Senate at a time when early on, if you recall, he was considered a long shot. It wasn't until he was able to kind of prove that he had the capacity to raise some money that people started to get on board and then the thing became... A much bigger thing i think you got to compete everywhere south carolina mississippi these are not states that people traditionally think of as democratic strongholds but it's important to put strong candidates on the ballot in all of those places and i would say that you know the third thing is running great candidates who have um, important stories to tell about the work that they want to try to do who are tough, who are tested, who um, with the right amount of support and a leveling leveling of the playing field can prove that they can be successful too. And I I would add, by the way, that that means more Black candidates, particularly in Congress, right? Like if we want to have a representative government, if we want to have government of, for, and by the people, then that means more Black people need to be elected to Congress. And we certainly need to elect a Black woman to the United States Senate. It's a travesty, in my opinion, that there is not one Black woman serving in the current iteration of the United States Senate. And so that's part of the reason why the collective supported uh, Congresswoman Demings very, very early on. It's one of the reasons why we're so excited about Judge Sherry Beasley, Uh, in North Carolina and other candidates that are stepping up to the plate to run for Congress. It's important that we have good candidates that are willing to take this step, that we are showing them that we can be supportive, not just with our mouth, but with our dollars and with our feet and um, that we do that in everywhere. And I think if we lead with our values if we run great candidates and we compete everywhere then we'll begin the process of dealing with some of the erosion of support uh among black people within the democratic party there's a lot of work to do there's no doubt about it i would say start in those three places and you're off to a pretty good start
1: no that's that's very very um, very interesting to hear, you know, those three things, because in reading the report, it does become obvious, you know, where there's opportunity, you know, for for growth and to shore up some of that support. And like you say, keep voters engaged throughout the entire um, process, not just coming at the end of the you know election cycle and say, hey, we need you to come out and vote for us. Um, instead of, you know, coming towards black voters and minority voters is say, look, we, we need to persuade these folks to come out, give them a real reason why they should vote for us. So um, great, really great stuff. Again, if you have not read the report um, that we keep you know mentioning here on the show, you can read it. It's on thirdway.org. Um, I think you can find it. It's called the 2020 uh, post-election an- analysis. It's very, very interesting. Uh, Kevin mentioned it about the defund the police uh, movement and how that was used effectively by Republicans um, to really hamper the opportunities, um, really in particular for for candidates of color who were running in swing districts. They were pretty effective um, in, criti- in, in attacking them using the defund the police movement as a scare tactic, like you say. So um, again, thirdway.org if you want to read the full report. Um, Kevin, we really appreciate you coming on the show, dropping some knowledge for us in our first episode episode of the year i mean of the new season and so again we just appreciate you coming on and and talking with us
3: absolutely it was an absolute pleasure thanks for having me look forward to continuing to do some of the great work i'd be remiss if i did not plug the collective if you're interested in learning more about (laughs) our organization or trying to figure out how to help us elect more black people www.collectivepack.org. Yeah.
2: Hey, no, don't take any, uh, don't say apologies for that. We need you to plug that. Uh, We're definitely (laughs) going to make sure to promote you and, make sure that people know more about the collective pack, because as you said, we've got to have uh, a support. And I, I like the fact that, you know, it's called the collective pack. Cause I think that that's what we have, uh, uh, you know um, something that we're lacking in our minority, especially our black communities where we can't come together and have collective strength. So yeah, we're definitely going to continue to promote you and welcome to have you back onto the show at any time. Absolutely. Thanks guys. All right, Kevin. Well, hey, you stay safe, you stay healthy out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Sounds good. And all right, listeners, with that, we're going to take uh, one break here. And when we come back, we'll get right back into our special Juneteenth Weekly Roundup. So stick with us. We'll be right back.
4: Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into it here. And man, Devin, as always, great interviews from the Black Agenda Podcast. You're never gonna get some uh, half-done guests here. Um, Kevin really laid it on us and gave some really great perspectives, and and I like it because you know Devin and I, you know, listeners, you probably know that we talk a lot about the Democratic Party and how they don't do a good job about marketing and really catering to the needs. Of their constituencies, so it's really nice when you see people who are on the grounds trying to actually change that narrative and show black and you know other minority communities that the Democratic ticket is actually trying to progress our nation. We've just got some obstacles in the way that we've got to overcome. So that's awesome to see that. But we wanted to kind of flip and get back onto Juneteenth because again, it's Juneteenth, 2021. First time it's a federal holiday. So we've got to make sure to go back to that and highlight some good things going on around our country. We know that there's a lot of cities doing in-person activities. But we know a lot of people are going to be listening, not wanting to go out and do stuff. Maybe there's some people who are skeptical about the virus. So We wanted to highlight some virtual events that are going to be going on. There's actually a list uh, from Travel and Leisure. If you just go to TravelandLeisure.com, they've got a list of nine events that are happening. We're going to highlight those events here real quickly for you just to kind of give you some details. But looks like there's one over in the Carolinas that's going to be going on, the Carolina Corps uh, it's going to be uh, honoring its heritage. This is like a, a region-wide thing of Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point. They're going to be doing some. so you can check on that, the Carolina Corps. Um, if you're not on the East Coast, maybe you're closer to Tennessee, looks like they're going to be doing a big thing in Chattanooga, their fourth annual uh, Chattanooga Festival of Black Arts and Ideas that's going to be happening. Was well, actually been happening from the 31st, and it's going to be going all the way till the 25th of this month. So they've got a lot of different things going on, even some events that they're going to be holding in person on MLK Boulevard. Another really cool event that's going to be happening, uh, Colorado Springs are having a big Juneteenth celebration starting uh, yesterday all the way through the 20th. They're going to be doing a free three-day event At America the beautiful park so glad to see that they're going to be celebrating some outdoor festivities there Um, we also got some activities going on in Fayetteville North Carolina some other stuff in Fort Wayne Indiana so Devin I mean there are stuff happening all over the country in person and there are even events that you can come into virtually so uh, yeah there's plenty of things for us to do uh, on, on Juneteenth today
1: Right. Yeah, I mean there's really, you know, no excuse to get out um and and celebrate and mingle and 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 really talk um to those who are out trying to get out, you know, black ideas and and things that you know, we should have been taught in school. And so if you, you know, this list here, we we kind of we're going all around the country, but it's it's different events. You know, we've been to the Carolinas, we've been to Indiana. Um there is one event here just to continue on. Looks like uh, in Virginia, Leesburg, Virginia is going to host its annual, uh, it's inaugural actually, Juneteenth celebration at Idle Lee Park. That's going to be a day-long event from noon to six. So if you're in uh, Leesburg, Virginia, you can go get some, some food. There's going to be a band there, some beverages. Um, so really good time. And then of course, if you are in Los Angeles, like my co-host Adrian, um, there's going to be uh, a pretty good event. It's going to be at the Los Angeles Public Library. They're going to be hosting a virtual event uh, with its Juneteenth Joy virtual celebration. And so the event includes a, DJ, a performance by DJ Pastel Shade, and then it's going to—they're going to ask you to come ready to dance from your living room. Um, so make sure you got your dancing shoes on, even if you are at home. Um, and so the event is—you know—it's going to invite movement through dancing, ancestor remembrance through ritual and even an opportunity to collectively celebrate our liberation and resilient, resilience, and that is directly from the library. So again, that's the Los Angeles Public Library in Los Angeles, California. So that's going to be a virtual celebration. And then going from the biggest city on the West Coast to the biggest city on the East Coast, um, we're going to go to New York City. They're going to be hosting their Juneteenth uh, New York Festival. That's going to be starting June 18th until June 20th. And it's a three-day festival festival. That includes, um, includes Pomp, which is the festival organizers described as what they call their play on Sir Edward Elgar's classic tune of Pomp and Circumstance that, when heard, often signifies graduation or regal entrance. And so uh, the Juneteenth Pomp is going to be a family-based experience. You know, bring out, you know, if you have kids that are between the ages of 14 and 19 uh, they can bring them out there. They can uh they'll go through a leadership training. So that's kind of cool. They're doing a leadership training in addition to a festival um, that's gonna be about Juneteenth. And then lastly, wrapping up here, uh take you up to Michigan, Flint, Michigan, actually, where they have a three-day festival from June 18th to June 20th. They're gonna hold host its largest Juneteenth celebration to date. This is in Flint, Michigan. It's gonna have a vendor expo a gospel festival and even a parade down Saginaw Street that's going to end at Barriston Field House. So again, we've gone all over the country, north, south, east, west. There's no excuse not to get excited. You can be at your home. You can be outside on the street uh, mingling with people. There are so many, so many ways to get out and celebrate uh what is now an official federal holiday, Juneteenth. And so Uh, With that, we're going to get you into our next interview. Again, like Adrian said, we always have great interviews. And so this interview that's coming up is going to be featuring uh, former state Senator Floyd McKissick. He is the chair of the North Carolina Democratic Party. We're going to be talking to him about the Democratic agenda and what the Biden administration is up to and what they're going to be trying to get done um, during his first term. So we're going to take it over there and we'll catch you on the next side.
4: Absolutely
3: appreciate your support. You are the foundation, and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get back into our special Juneteenth Weekly Roundup. We've got another great guest because there's a lot going on around the country, and we wanted to start off this season with a really, really big episode. So we've got another great guest to talk to us today. So listeners, just to let you know, we're joined today by former state senator Floyd McKissick, who is the vice chair of the North Carolina Democratic Party. And just to give you a little bit of background about former Senator McKissick, uh, obviously former state senator, civil rights attorney, he received his Juris Doctorate from Duke University and his master's of public administration from Harvard, and a master in regional planning from UNC Chapel Hill. So very, very qualified, highly credentialed person to talk to us about what's going on in the state party of North Carolina, but what's really going on in the Democratic Party as a whole. So uh, Senator McKissick, we really appreciate you being with us today.
0: It's a real pleasure, privilege, and honor to be with you. Look forward to our conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you. So to, to start off, you know, we wanted to really hit on this the Democratic agenda as a whole because you know uh, we we've seen a, a lot of stalling, you know, in Congress. It seems like that we haven't really been able to do anything, and when, when we think about what's about to happen next year with midterms. You know, the Democrats really need something on their resume to say that we're really trying to, you know, do something for the people so that we can be, you know, voted and actually maybe win some more seats. So, uh, Senator McKissick, our first question whenever you're looking at the difficulty of passing the Democratic agenda, what are y'all saying in North Carolina to the Democrats to keep everybody, you know, hopeful and, and positive about voting for the Democratic ticket?
0: Well, I think one of the things we do is look into the accomplishments that have already taken place already. I mean, when President Biden took office, I mean, we were being hardest hit by the pandemic, more so than at any other point in time since the pandemic began. And I mean, he immediately got out there and passed the American Rescue Plan. And and that American Rescue Plan really had a, an immediate impact upon African American families in particular, as well as small businesses. But you know, we when, when you think about it, the impacts that it had, I mean you were talking about African Americans being disproportionately impacted by COVID. I mean, about thirteen percent of the population in America is black, but we were representing over twenty-four percent of the deaths as a result of COVID. So, and black families were, on average, were facing far more difficult times when it came to unemployment. I mean, far higher percentage of people were unemployed, and so I mean, the the economic impact from COVID was dis proportionally impacting, you know, black communities. And, and, and when you think about it, this plan that got passed and got implemented immediately got money into the hands of people. You had these $1,400 checks going out. But more importantly, I mean, one of the things it was starting to do was to reduce poverty among African-American families. And it looks like it'll do that, but instead of about 34% of the population. So, I mean, in here in North Carolina, I mean, we, when you think about it, we were really impacted badly. And that American Rescue Plan gave us over $3 billion in relief, you know, for our schools, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade, helped the schools get reopened, helped get, you know, vaccines in the arms of people. So, you know, it provided $160 billion, yes, in supplies, and emergency responses for testing, for public health workforce to stop, stop the spread of COVID. So, I mean, there was so much done. Immediately, that was profound and significant that helped lift people of color in a, in a profound and significant way. So, I mean, they were not being so adversely impacted by this terrible, terrible pandemic, which was worst pandemic in 100 years.
1: Right. And and, and that, you know, the American Relief Ah, uh, package that was passed uh you know a few months ago is is a humongous achievement for sure. Like you say, getting money in the pockets of people is always gonna be, you know, pretty popular. You know, so running on that in the midterms will definitely help. But I, you know, we just wanted to ask too um there are, you know, some other things out there, in particular HR one, you know, the the voting rights protection bill um is is having some some trouble getting past a a you know Senator Joe Manchin and his um, concerns about it. And and um, also, you know, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, still hasn't passed. Um, and even though President Biden asked for that to, you know, to be passed by the one year anniversary, still hasn't. So there are some challenges. And, it, you know, we understand, too, the Democratic Party is a little different, you know, from the Republican Party in that you do have a much broader, you know, coalition of folks that you're trying to wrangle together. Um, I think we had an interview earlier today, where they, they compared it to trying to herd cats and get them to march together. It's a very difficult job. We, we get it. But, you know, what do you think the message is, you know, from from Democrats to, to Black voters who may understand, yes, you did pass the COVID relief bill, but we are still waiting for these other shoes to drop, like HR1 or the Justice and Policing Act, or even just getting a vote on HR40. Um, You know, what is the message to them to to make sure that they understand that your vote was valuable and that it will lead to tangible, you know, hopefully tangible changes within the community?
0: Well, I think, first of all, President Biden, you know, he's uh, articulated his support for the For the People Act. And and definitely we need to do something to uh, address the type of regressive legislation that's being passed all across the country by uh, legislators where Republicans are in control. And uh, and I uniquely understand that because I know what they did here in North Carolina during the time I was a member of the Senate. I mean, they, they went out there and did racial gerrymandering. They did partisan gerrymandering. I mean, they looked at North Carolina when it came to racial gerrymandering and said it had been done with surgical precision. So, I mean, maps had to get overturned. And, uh, and as a result of getting overturned, they got redrawn. And as a result of getting redrawn, we were able to get, more people elected that represented the values of of, of the citizens of North Carolina and more Democrats elected as a result of that. But yes, I mean, do we need to do something nationally? I think the the answer is we we would love to see that occur. I think that that will ultimately occur. And I think President Biden has announced and articulated his support for bills and legislation that will help accomplish that. And I think the Democratic Party, Um, you know, nationally, is working with the state Democratic parties to do all that they can to be ready, to prepare, to um, get get people to understand, first of all, that we need to mobilize, we need to be ready for 2022, and we need to do what's necessary so that we can get uh, Democratic candidates um, as well as the uh, Democratic agenda uh, before the public. And we are doing the outreach efforts and planning to strategize outreach efforts to accomplish that. So I think that, yes, things can be done in Washington. Uh, Things can be done uh, through the National Democratic Party. Things can be done through the state parties. And I think efforts are being made across the board. Um, I think that, you know, if we can get some of the legislation passed in Washington, that'd be great. We need to reverse the impact of Supreme Court decisions that uh, pretty much eroded the provisions that were in the Voting Rights Act. And and we need to do it in a way that we do reinstate uh, the provisions that were provided protections in the past so that people's voting rights were not compromised and that their rights, they were able to go out and elect candidates of choice and of preference uh, free of gerrymandering or either tactics or strategies that would disproportionately impact uh, the votes of African-Americans uh, in a way that many of these Republican legislatures today are uh, are trying to once again, institute similar type practices that might do so.
2: Right. And, and that what you ended on right there, uh, Senator McKissick, about those, you know, Republican controlled legislators, I, I kind of want to pick up on that, you know, because, you know, we've seen the reports, you know, we've you know, we even had the Brenner Center for Justice on on our uh, on our podcast where we talked about all of these Republican initiatives around the country who are really trying to redefine who's a qualified voter and really trying to restrict what voting is and whenever we think about this, it almost seems hopeless in some states because it's like, you know, the the, the GOP controls the legislature and in some states they even control the governorship. And we just wanted to kind of ask you. You know what? What? What's some good advice to? Because you, you know you you've been in you know as a state senator. Um, what's some good advice to people out who are listening as far as reaching out to their you know state and uh, senators, uh, congressmen, federal and stuff. What what what's the best way to really reach out to them and actually move them? Because I feel like until we get more constituencies reaching out and asking you know senators and congressmen why they're not voting you know for for the people act and trying to. Expand our voting rights. Um, what, what's your best advice to the folks out there to really try to, you know, get their 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 leadership to move the ball on these issues?
0: Well, I think, first of all, it, you, you have to get out there and actively lobby them in many respects. So if it's people up in Washington, members of Congress, members of the Senate, and likewise within your states so, to make sure you get active, to make sure you get engaged, to make sure you know who they are, to make sure that you get organized, to make sure that you have a, a list of those people that you need to network with to understand that what their constituencies look like and how you can impact their potential ability to even continue serving in office. But I mean, you got to build coalitions. I mean, coalition building is important. And one thing I'd say about the Democratic Party, we are a big tent. Uh, We're a big tent that's able to bring together people that sometimes are a little bit diverse in their thinking, but they understand the greater goal is to give people the right to elect candidates in choice and to empower them to do so. We're not like the folks that were up there in Washington on January 6th. We're not like the people who were breaking into the Capitol. We're not sitting there with a mindset that it's time to stop the voting. We're people who want to see that people are empowered to vote, that they exercise their constitutionally protected right to vote, and that when those constitutionally protected rights to the votes are somehow challenged or compromised, that they're willing to stand up with strength and cohesion and diversity to let those people know in public office that they will be held accountable. If you're not sitting there working hard, if you're not working through it, if you're not working decisively, if you're not doing what need be done to reverse that trend, then you know you're, that, that's part of the problem. But I've seen an incredible level of awakeness, uh, particularly in the aftermath of George Floyd. And, uh, and 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 of course, all the groups that came together that were unified in understanding that there is so much common ground that builds that we can build upon that brings us together and that we build upon that common ground and that we work together to bring about fundamental, significant change. Um, I, I think we can. I think we will. I think we must do so. But I think those are the types of strategies that need to be implemented. And, uh, you know, if you sit back complacently, uh, things may continue on the path that they're on right now. But I think we have tremendous leadership in Washington with President Biden, who understands the importance of the legislation that needs to be passed. I mean, right now he's doing extraordinarily well in the polls with, you know, people feeling as if in terms of his quality of leadership, it's there. We got Merrick Garland, who's in the attorney general's office. As I recall, about last week or so, he mentioned that he was doubling the number of attorneys in civil rights division. That's encouraging. That's something we can feel good about. Those are people that are going to protect voting rights vigorously. Those are people going to be looking at civil rights of people vigorously. It's not like it was under the Republican controlled administration that we last had in office where they were calling upon them regularly to compromise the rights of people. You're absolutely
2: part. No, you're absolutely right on on all of that. And it's and 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 what you're talking about really speaks to the fact that you know the Democrats are gonna need to really dig into these coalitions, you know, dig into this Big Ten philosophy. But you know, Senator McKissick, one of the things that um, that we've talked about, we we had the organizing director from the, the the collective pack. And one of the things that he talked about is that it seems for a lot of minority voters, especially black voters, they feel that the Democrats only come around during election season. You know, we talked about this big tent and these coalitions. But a lot of people feel that, you know, Democrats don't really invest, you know, throughout the year and throughout the election time and off, you know, election season. I don't know, you know, if that's the same case in North Carolina, but you might get, you know, pick up and speak to, you know, what that looks like in North Carolina as far as the Democratic Party, you know, building up the institutions even on, you know, non-election years and what that really means as far as if the Democrats would take on this initiative to make sure they are building these coalitions, even when it's not an election time?
0: I think we can, we should, we must build those coalitions. We've been successful in North Carolina in doing so. We do, in fact, have a Democratic governor in our state, um, which, I mean, uh, some of the Southern states do not. I mean, there may be Republican leadership in the General Assembly, uh, but at the same time, our Democratic governor, and with the help of coalition groups, We broke the Republican supermajority. When I say we broke the Republican supermajority, Republican majority um, was able to pass legislation and they had enough votes to override a veto by the governor. We broke that veto proof ability. And that stopped them dead in their heels in terms of passing bad legislation because the governor could veto it and the Democrats in the General Assembly and the legislature could sustain his veto. That's significant. And yes, we, we have a ground game and we get that ground game out and we keep it going 24-7 uh, in every year that we have an election. And in North Carolina, back in 2018, we we made tremendous gains in the state legislature in terms of excuse, 2018 in terms of picking up seats. Um, and that was something that was very profound, very significant. Uh, you know, we're, we're one of those purple states. So, yeah, we have to work hard. We have to be smarter. And but that ground game, we are now looking to expand even more so. And, and yes, we want to get out into those rural areas in our state, um, areas where we have a presence, areas where we have people active. But we want to make sure that they have the resources that they need. And that we message to them in a way that they connect with our agenda, connect with our priorities and understand how we are the party of preference and choice that can protect their interests in terms of jobs that they be created, in terms of civil rights, in terms of quality education in the school system, in terms of doing what need be done so that those people can feel that they can live a valuable and significant life that contribute to society. And their upward mobility can be increased as it has been increasing for many, many years. Is thing, are things moving at the pace we need them to move? No, it could be done faster. But if we look at where we are today versus where we were 50 and 60 years ago, we've done things that people might not have conceived of, and we've broken all types of glass ceilings and put people a diverse group of people, not just regardless of race, but regardless of sexual orientation and gender identity, regardless of religion, we've empowered them in ways that people might not have imagined just 60 years ago today.
1: You're absolutely right. Things things have absolutely changed. And even in North Carolina, you know, it didn't always used to be a purple state, you know, it used to be reliably red, you know, up until President Obama came along. And it shocked the world. Um, and so right now, you know, there there's a, a Senate seat that's going to be up, you know, open for, for election next year. It was It's currently held by Republican Senator Richard Burr, but he said he's not going to uh, seek re-election. And so that leaves a golden opportunity, um, you know, for North Carolina Democrats to pick up a seat possibly in the Senate. We know uh, last year Kyle Cunningham ran a, a very good race against Tom Tillis. He didn't ultimately win, but it was very close. And so... Um, you know, our question is just, you know, how important, you know, would picking up this Senate seat next year, what would that mean, you know, for you, you all at the North Carolina State Democratic Party, but also for the the Democratic agenda as a whole, what would it mean to be able to flip that seat, um, you know, from a Richard Burr to a Democratic candidate? Um, and I guess if you want to add on it, just what's your message as far as, you know, to voters why this is important?
0: Sure. I mean, first of all, it's important because we need the extra Democratic vote in in, in Washington in the U.S. Senate. I mean, right now we got a one vote margin when the vice president is there to cast that vote. And we don't want to keep the vice president sitting there in Washington all the time. We need her moving around this country and doing other things. But, yes, we need to pick up that additional seat. We can do it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people thought that Elizabeth Dole, was, you know, she'd been endowed and, and had that seat in, in, in the U.S. Senate. People didn't think that anybody could take it until Kay uh, Hagan came along and she did it. OK, can we do it again? The answer is profoundly yes. Uh, we don't know who it's going to be, but we got some wonderful, strong candidates, uh, people like Sherry Beasley, who was uh, a, a North Carolina Supreme Court justice that only lost her seat by about 400 votes. I mean, talking about being within the statistical margin of error, I mean, you can't get closer to 400 and some odd votes out of probably 5.7 million cast in the election year. Um, You got Jeff Jackson, the state senator from out of Mecklenburg County. Uh, You got a former state senator, Erica Smith, as well as others. So there is a group of candidates that I think can appeal to a broad cross section of voters, not just Democratic voters but of voters who are interested in moving our state forward, who are independent in their thinking, that can bring in and broaden that base and can pick up those unaffiliated voters and likewise pick up Republican voters who are sick and tired of the type of rhetoric that they're hearing, that are sick and tired of Republicans who stand up for happening what happened on January 6th and sit there today and act like they were a group of tourists that came into Washington trying to revise history rather than understanding the type of insurrection is that they are, that are sick and tired of people who repress the civil rights of people, that people that, that want to, You I mean, right now we got Senator Tillis who's sitting there now, you know, trying to debate, uh, you know, what type of education should occur in our public schools. Um, and, and, you know, Do we need to get people there who understand the broad cross section of North Carolina voters who reflect the cross section of opinions that we have and that will fight for meaningful principle change that is progressive change, but more importantly, change that all North Carolinians can support? I think North Carolina is ready. I think North Carolina will see that state that that that, excuse me, that Senate seat flip. And I think that North Carolina will join the Democratic majority up in Washington after the 2022 elections. And and I'm looking forward to that day and uh, looking forward to supporting that candidate of choice that comes out of our our primary.
2: Fantastic, fantastic. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. You know, we we don't like to tell people that, you know, you should only listen to one particular party but where we are in america where clearly the you know the the gop on the national level has bought into this big lie and on the state level they're really trying to change the way voting operates um, we really have to advocate more for Democrats and more for people—not only just Democrats, but the Democrats that are really talking about the issues that are at home right now, like voting and healthcare and jobs and infrastructure. So, uh, Senator McKissick, we really, really, really appreciate your insight that you've given us—not only into the Democratic Party, but also in the you know local, state, and federal government. So, again, we really thank you for being with us today.
0: Well, it's been a privilege and an honor and uh, feel free to give me a call anytime. And, and thank you for providing a, a mouthpiece and an audience that listens, that cares and, and, and being able to share with them insights from a variety of perspectives and a variety of people who um, they, their thoughts will certainly be different from my own. But you know what? That's what makes America great It's that diversity of thought and opinion, that fabric that we weave together. That makes us stronger because it's a tightly woven fabric. And that's what your program helps. That's what it kind of represents, symbolizes. It broadens the awareness level. It it provides information to an audience. So I thank you. Thank you both for being that type of, uh, providing that type of vehicle for us all.
2: Well yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And what we'll do, listeners, we're gonna take another break here. And when we come back, we're gonna get back into our special weekly roundup, uh, Juneteenth edition. So stick with us. We'll be right back.
4: You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, Let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right listeners, let's get back into it here our third segment here coming out of another great interview with former state senator Floyd McKissick. Um really interesting character. I mean he told us some interesting stories off off the off uh, the the recording that was really awesome. He's really good you know person to talk to. I'm sure he's a joy to be around so glad to have the former state senator on there. But listeners, we want to give you a little bit of news, and we know that uh, this week President Biden did his first foreign trip where he was overseas, checking out a lot of different U.S. allies, really trying to heal the relationship that he, whether that our former uh, president kind of did to all of our world leaders. He started off with a group of seven, uh, the G7, making sure that he uh, tried to heal those wounds from Donald Trump did the NATO North Atlantic treaty organization went over there, which is a military alliance that we actually have. Um, we also went and met with the European council also did a meeting with Russian president Vladimir Putin. Uh, everybody was you know kind of looking forward to that because we know that Donald Trump and Putin did that little uh, shindig in Helsinki and that didn't go too well. So Devin, most people come out of president Biden's first trip saying that, The U.S. is back. uh, American uh, democracy, global democracy is back. And we actually have a shot to, uh, you know, I guess rectify four years of Donald Trump um, if we do it in a more cohesive way and if we do it in a more democratic way. So we just wanted to, you know, listeners highlight that because it's good to see that we've got some normalcy when it comes to foreign policy.
1: Exactly. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's. Refreshing a little bit, at least on the world stage, that we're kind of taking back, um, you know, some of the responsibilities uh, that you know that we used to do, and um, trying to be the leader around the world. And so, um, it seems to be like you said, a successful first uh, foreign trip uh, for President Biden. So, the other piece of news we wanted to to, to make sure we tackle before we get out of here uh, was one a little thing called critical race theory. You may have heard about this. I think everybody has heard about critical race theory in the last couple of weeks, if not months. Um, But we do have more news on that. So it looks like last Saturday, the Texas Senate passed a bill uh, that would ban schools from requiring staff to discuss or teach critical race theory to students. And so the legislation uh, was passed in the Texas lower chamber on May 11th, uh, but the house will have to approve it again after the Senate made changes. And so, uh this bill this bill is House Bill 3979 requires teachers who talk about race relations to look at different viewpoints without quote giving deference to any one perspective and so uh Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said the bill makes certain that critical race philosophies including the 1619 founding myth are removed from our school curriculum statewide and so this has been a humongous humongous debate Um, Adrian, and I'm not sure where this came from because I'll be honest, I hadn't really heard of critical race theory um, before this uproar came about in the last few months, but apparently it has taken off and there are discussions happening all across this country. Right now, critical race theory is banned in Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Oklahoma, and now Texas. Um, And I think even uh, we learned the last couple of days, Wisconsin, a senator um, or a representative there has introduced a bill to ban critical race theory. Uh, there are several other states who are thinking about going ahead and banning critical race theory from being taught in schools. And so uh, the good news is, if you're wondering, like I am, what in the world is critical race theory, um, then we will be having. you Make sure you tune in to not our next episode, but the one after that. Well, tune into both because <laughs> they're both going to be really good. But we are going to be talking about critical race theory and what exactly is it. So make sure you, you tune into that. It's going to be a very good discussion uh, with an expert exactly who can explain to us what it is. So, Adrian, um, an uproar indeed. There's people all across the country who seem to have an opinion on critical race theory. Um, so as you can see, they're trying to take action to ban it. But we're going to make sure we educate the people, you know, so they can understand what is really going on.
2: Exactly, Devin. I mean, that's essentially why we started this podcast, and we always like to uh, come, keep it real, telling people what's going on. But uh, listeners, we don't want to end there. We wanted to make sure we get you some funny quick hits here. Um, I wanted to go over this petition I saw uh, involving Jeff Bezos and the, the painting, The Mona Lisa. So basically, there's a petition that's urging Jeff Bezos to buy The Mona Lisa and eat it. Um, you know, Devin, that's you know, it's not like they want them to buy it and display it or <laughs> buy it and you know donate the proceeds to charity, they just want them to buy it and eat it. Yes, um, eat it. <laughs> uh, <Digest. that's>, exactly. <laughs> there was a joke on change.org that's that read, Nobody has eaten the Mona Lisa, and we feel Jeff Bezos needs to take a stand and make that happen. So, uh, somebody else says, Gaba the Lisa. Uh, another joke. I feel like this is something society needs. Jeff, we need you to make the sacrifice for society. So I, I don't, I don't know. I feel like with all of his billions of dollars, there's probably a lot other sacrifices that people should be throwing at him. But you know, that's okay. Um, looks like you know, uh, Jeff Bezos instead of buying the Mona Lisa is going to be investing more money in Blue Origin, and they're going to be actually doing the first. Uh, Flight to schedule for next month uh, You know to go off into space So I think I read something Devin where he said the only way he could spend All of his money is by investing In a space exploration Versus maybe like you know poverty Or homelessness Or education you know A lot of other different reasons but he's just going to go To space but hey uh, there's
1: Some some Jeff Bezos news for you Devin (laughs) Interesting uh, I mean, yeah, hey, it is his money. He can, you know, like you say, there could be better uses for it. But if he wants to go to space or eat the Mona Lisa, he could do that because he has $200 billion is his net worth. Um, so um, our next kind of funny quick hit, uh, this is a crazy one. That The title really was, this is the guy that it said man was swallowed by a whale. And so this story here comes out of Massachusetts. It's a so what happened here is a commercial lobster diver says he was swallowed whole by a whale off the Massachusetts coast on Friday, and he actually made it out alive with only minor injuries following the life and death encounter. And so the man is uh, Michael Packard. He's 56 of Wellfleet, Massachusetts, and he was released hours from a Cape Cod hospital following the encounter with the humpback whale. And so he told WBZ-TV that he was 45 feet deep in the waters of Provincetown when the attack occurred. And so when it actually happened, he thought the whale was a shark, but he realized he was wrong when he didn't feel any teeth or pain. And so this is quote from Mr. Packard. He said, all of a sudden I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I know, it was completely black. He said, I could sense I was moving and I could feel the well squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. He said, I was completely inside the well. It was completely black. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. They are 12 and 15 years old. And so Mr. Packard says he was in the well's mouth for, for about 30 seconds, had to probably be the longest 30 seconds in his life. Um, he was able to breathe because he still had his breathing apparatus on. And so in an effort to free himself, he said he began shaking the whale's head before the animal surfaced and, and ejected him. And in the Facebook post, he said the well quote, spit him out and that he escaped with bruises, but no broken bones. So, Adrian, there's a, an insane story there. It's almost right out the Bible. <laughs> uh, he, he, you know, got swallowed by a whale and lived to tell the tale. Now, I didn't mean to rhyme there, but
2: <laughs> hey, I uh, I write children's uh, books, so I like rhymes like that. So that's no problem at all. There, uh, a, a, a real life Jonah right there. That's a good story. But yeah, uh, listeners, that does it. Uh, we're coming to an end here. Um, this has been a, a special weekly roundup. We'll get back to our regular weekly roundups where we're bringing you breaking news and giving you some education over what's going on around the world. Remember that we're also going to be bringing uh, another regular podcast episode. This is, I guess, like episode one, but officially episode one will be this Tuesday. Devin, you want to talk to the listeners a little bit about what they're going to hear on this upcoming
1: Tuesday? Sure. So as always, we, we like to bring you different topics, different guests. And this one is no different. So this is coming out on Tuesday, June 22nd. Ah, uh, this is going to be all about protecting. The title of this episode is "Protecting Our Democracy," um, and so the guest for this particular episode is the president of Voting Rights and State Organizing, uh, Portia White. Um, she works for an organization called—I um, have to get it. Can you remind me, Adrian, what that organization is? I don't remember. Yeah, so
2: it's a, the organization is called. In Citizens United, and yeah, okay, yes. it's, it's, I guess it's a it's a it's a combo organization. In Citizens United and Let America Vote,
1: mm-hmm. where
2: Portia is the president of their voting rights and state organizing division.
1: Right, really great organization. And so Portia is going to join us on Tuesday to talk to us about um, you know the recent incidents, like the January insurrection and the in the big lie about the election and how that is really a direct threat to this delicate democracy that we have built here um, in America. So make sure you tune in. That's going to be a really, really interesting, really great conversation with her. Like I say, also tune in the next week on the 29th as we talk about critical race theory. And so uh, before that next episode on the 29th, we'll be right back here saturday june 26th to bring you more news this will be a a regular weekly roundup so we'll have a lot more news to bring you but this one was special because we knew we were starting off the season it was juneteenth we wanted to make sure we bring it to you a little bit differently um and so we did that and so um before we go adrian you can let the folks know where they can find us donate follow whatever they want to do you can let them know
2: yeah we need you to do that especially this season we're We've had two very great seasons uh, so far, but this season we really want to be spectacular, and we will not be able to do that without our fans. So listeners, we need you to go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click that donate tab, start off a dollar a month, it's really, really quick and easy to do that. Uh, And escalate from there. Start maybe doing 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever you want to do, but know that your dollars are going to go towards something that's not only educating the community, but working to lobby leaders and bring about some justice and real change for our community. So, yeah, Devin, real great to do that. And don't forget, we're on all the major platforms from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Just go at Black Agenda Pod and you're going to be able to find us. Make sure you like, follow us, uh, make sure you share everything that you see, because anything you see with the Black Agenda podcast on it, it's going to be something worth sharing. Wouldn't you agree, Devin?
1: Oh, absolutely. Please share everything that you see. We're trying to go this. This is season three. We're nearing 5,000 downloads, so we're trying to get there, and we're only going to get there uh, with your help. So, again, we appreciate you tuning in and listening, um, you know, to two really, really good interviews Uh, from some organizations that you may not have necessarily heard from and so the collective pack and then you also got to hear from the chair of the north carolina democratic party so two really good interviews and like like i say we'll have some great things coming up in the next few weeks buckle in this is going to be a very 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 good season uh season three here to the end of the year so again uh for me and adrian we appreciate you listening and sticking sticking with us and we'll catch you next time